Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah show kicks off this hour. I want to start out tonight by talking about Serpent OS. You can read more at serpentos.com. Now, this distro aims to set itself apart. The vast majority of Linux distributions have very similar goals. Um, they often cater to people that are looking for modern, lightweight, or privacy-oriented uh, distributions. Well, Serpent OS is focusing on a Linux distribution for Linux enthusiasts. They, uh, they put, we're focused on building a Linux distribution that serves our own needs, chiefly a Linux distribution for people who want to use Linux, not a Linux-based OS focusing on interoperability with Mac OS and Windows. In a nutshell, this is not Linux for the masses. This is a project setting out to use Linux as Linux should be used. And this will in turn help us to build a significant advanced Linux distribution that is both modular and optimized for modern machines. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. Oftentimes, I will get people that will send in a, uh, a distro to the show or they'll ask me to take a look at something. I'll say, have you heard of this distribution? And my question is always, well, maybe I have, maybe I haven't, but tell me what it is that makes that distribution set apart. Um, one of the things that I notice is that a lot of times, and this is a reoccurring theme, we see uh, a, a, a new Ubuntu um, a base with a different desktop environment on top. And in some cases, there is a lot of value in that. And I think, obviously, to a certain degree, the project leads that are there do influence um, what those distros ultimately become. And so Ubuntu Mate, even though it is a an Ubuntu base with the Mate desktop, uh, knowing how Martin Wimpers brought that distribution about, uh, uh, about starts to help you understand why it's particularly ideally suited for your grandmother or your mother or your best friend or somebody who you want to just drop into a distribution and trust that they're going to be well taken care of. But oftentimes, those kinds of distros focus on things like, well, we want to install software the way that you would install it on Windows or Mac OS. We want people to be feel like they're in a familiar environment. Maybe we want the desktop environment to start to mimic that of Windows or Mac OS. Or maybe we want specific file sharing uh, or compatibility issues. I, I, I very much remember the very first time uh, I got into a discussion um, back in a Red Hat class about... Uh, Linux and, 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 and directory services and Samba. And the entire discussion uh, for most of the people that were taking the class as well as the instructors were they were mostly interested in how to get Linux to function very well inside of a Windows environment than to get the best directory or file sharing uh, that you could on Linux itself. And I think those kinds of things 
I, I think that leads us down a, a false path. I think the value in open source software where we have seen Linux shine and really do uh, it really work its best is when it's doing things that have nothing that have nothing to do with Windows or Mac OS. It's when somebody just sets out and says, hey, I want to make the best video encoding stuff that I can. We come away with things like VLC and we come away with things like with like FFmpeg. Um, and so these are the tools that I really believe set Linux apart. And so the fact that Serpent OS is now going down this path of of saying, hey, we want to build the best Linux distro we can. Um, this is a very exciting uh, distribution and something that I think uh, sets itself apart. They're completely open source. Um, they are going to they're going to bootstrap the the distro and re rebuild scripts. They are optimizing for serious workloads. People who want to get work done, people who want to crunch code, those kinds of things. Third party applications will be reliant on containers only, and so they're interested in doing it right, not fast, right, not compatible. And I. Again, this is something different. We've not seen this before. Wayland only X11 compatibility via containers is something that they're willing to look at down the road and fully stateless with management tools for upstreaming of patches. They're also, and I didn't include it in my show notes, but it was in their, in their, uh, in their blog post, talks uh, a, a little bit about how they're interested in a hybrid approach between uh, source and binary and how they're going to have both of those available um, so that you can take advantage of uh, the, the, the best of both worlds. Um, now, this was interesting, the time scale. So this is not a distro yet. And they say on their site that it may seem incredibly odd launching a website before there's a distro to show off. However, it became very apparent to us that the cat would soon be out of the bag anyway, so we wanted to be prepared. Currently, the founder is in the midst of relocating from the Republic of Ireland. Um, once, once complete, we'll move to stage two of our bootstrap process and begin working on the tooling needed for the base development. And so at this point, this is, uh, this is a big concept. This is an idea. Um, but essentially, uh, I, I, I'm really excited to see what this is going to look like and where this is going to take us. I think we would be particularly well uh, well advised to when you set out to do a distro, when you come out to create a new distro, ask yourself the question, what problem that, that can't be solved by current distros would I be solving if we put this thing forward? And this one answers a big question, a Linux distro for people who want to use Linux first. Very exciting. Thanks to Serpent OS. Um, for, for doing this. And of course, we'll continue to follow the development as it moves on. Our gadget of the week this week is a monitorizer. It's the Von Haas 05081. Now you might be saying to yourself, no, why would you talk about a monitorizer? Well, this is the best monitorizer I've ever used. It's made out of curved glass. And so it has a very elegant look when you, when you put it up. The other thing is a lot of monitorizers, particularly those that you'll buy in department stores, so Walmart, Office Max, Office Depot, if you've tried any of those monitorizers, they're not constructed very well. And subsequently, they don't handle multi-monitors, or in my case, multi-monitors, and then some other stuff that needs to be there, right? I need the ability to put um, my PC speakers. I have to have my phone somewhere. There's a lot of stuff that has to be on a desk. And using a monitorizer gets you a little bit of extra space because the bases of the monitors are then elevated a little bit. Uh, and, and, and also you get a, a little bit of a cubby space underneath, which is I use oftentimes I'll slide my keyboard in there and work on projects on right on the desk. Uh, other times I'll store things like my phone or, or, uh, or even the, put the docking station for the laptop underneath that monitorizer. Uh, it has space 
for two monitors or the ultra wide. I have one that I'm using with uh, with two Dell 24 inch monitors, and I have another one that I'm using with the Dell ultra wide. Uh, 34 inch that I talked about last week. Again, very well built. The other thing I like is it's easily collapsible. The the legs on the bottom just unscrew and it collapses down very quickly, which is useful because I've I've now purchased one that I'm taking with me when I go uh, on long trips. If I'm at a client for three or four days, I'll bring that along and put an external monitor up, and that's a little bit easier on your neck, your posture, those kinds of things. Um, so I I don't use my laptop as a third display. Uh, when I plug it into the dock, I, I just I want to forget that it's a laptop. When it's a laptop, I want it to be small and portable and 13 inches and easy to take along. When it's functioning in a docking station as a desktop, I want it to feel like a desktop. I want it to be comfortable, very large screens and comfortable uh, typing. And so what I've gone to is the monitor stand I just spoke about, the Von Haas, and a and I'm, I'm, I'm at the moment, I'm between two laptop stands to house the laptop. So I put both of them in the show notes. Uh, I have one of each. I'm playing with it. The, the jury's still out on this, but one is the Jarling vertical laptop stand. So this basically, if you think about it, looks like a little foot and then has just uh, a little negative space that the laptop sits vertically closed in, um, which fits perfectly well with, like I say, working inside of a dock. But the second one um, is, I believe, really designed for people that want to use their laptop as a third monitor. And it's the Rain Design M stand. And the Rain Design M stand, what I like about it is it's all one physical uh device or unit, um, but it allows you to use the laptop screen itself in an elevated position. And so it's kind of in between. If you're not quite ready to commit to some sort of a docking system, you're primarily still working off the laptop, I would highly recommend the Rain Design. Um, the reason I say the jury's still out on it is when you have it connected to a dock, it seems like it occupies an awful lot of, uh, an awful lot of desk space. And so... Um, again, if you're not using the, the keyboard and the mouse on the laptop, uh, I'm, I'm inclined to say the jar link, but both of them will be linked in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. I'd be interested in, uh, in, in, in what you think. If you have a preference or if you've used one of these laptop stands or a different one that I hadn't heard of, uh, please send it in to live at asknoahshow.com and, uh, I'll take a look at it. <laughs> in the news this week, uh, the EU has a landmark ruling uh, for privacy rights. The European Court of Justice invalidated Privacy Shield, which was a U.S.-EU agreement um, that was passed to give tech companies in the United States easier access to the market overseas. And this special arrangement for U.S. companies has been rendered null and void. And so if the U.S. wants to reestablish a similar agreement, they first have to change their surveillance laws. Now, this takes us all the way back to 2015 when the original agreement, which was the International Safe Harbor Privacy Principles, was declared uh, invalid by the European Court of Justice. So that then was replaced by this EU-U.S. Privacy Shield Agreement. And essentially, all, all of these are, what, what these are is frameworks for regulating the exchanges of personal data for commercial purposes between the United States and the EU. And so companies like Facebook, because they're U.S.-based, they're, they're, of course, subject to the United States Constitution and Fourth Amendment privacy laws, which prevent them from um, engaging in certain, uh, certain privacy practices uh, on United States citizens. So if the United States government, for example, comes knocking and says, hey, we want uh, Noah Chalaya's Facebook profile, Facebook says get a warrant, he's a U.S. citizen. Um, but it turns out that the way that we treat the rest of the world isn't so great. That Those kinds of privacy protections are really not offered. In fact, um, there really is no privacy, uh, there is no real privacy offered 
um, for people that are non-U.S. citizens if it's a U.S. Uh, if it's a U.S.-based company. And so they what the what the European Court of Justice declared in its judgment was that basically U.S. laws don't protect the data of European citizens and that the surveillance programs that are in the United States are they, they don't limit the data that they ingest to what is strictly necessary. In fact, it's basically a in in a rubber stamp. Uh, quote, one of the major problems with the EU court pointed out was that the data of foreigners is not protected in the United States. The protections that are there, even if limited, only apply to U.S. citizens. The NSA can get full access to any and all data of non-U.S. citizens from Facebook at any time. In addition, non-U.S. data subjects have no actionable rights before the courts against the U.S. authorities, which violates the very essence of certain EU fundamental rights, the, EJ, the ECJ found. So this is the second time now that there's been a clash between EU privacy law and U.S. surveillance. Um, now, what is different here, or I think what is going to enact real change, is that essentially what the EU court said is that fundamental human rights to privacy uh, will not bend for the will of the NSA. And so the only way, the only way for the U.S. Uh, to reintroduce these kinds of services, and it's not just Facebook, right? It's any cloud-based, any cloud, any any provider in the United States that is based here that stores personal information. So, uh, you know, obviously office products or office cloud products are going to be included. Any sort of file syncing services are going to be included. And what they're looking for is surveillance reform. And the way that they're going about asking for their surveillance reform is saying, hey, if you don't, if you don't do something about your broad, uh, really unrestricted surveillance of our citizens, then we are just not going to let you participate here as a business. And uh, this, you know, I, this judgment, the, the, the guy who filed this case said it best. He said, this judgment is not the cause of a limit to data transfer, but it is the consequence of surveillance laws. And I thought that was interesting because the, the the first inclination as soon as i as soon as i saw this story break my first inclination was well they're going to say this is this is well, how do you expect us to handle this i mean if you have people that are doing bad things on the internet you expect us to sit idly by and not look for these people um I, I, they, this is great. And, and because they're attacking the checkbook of these companies, essentially what the EU has said is Facebook, you can't make money off of a section of the world until you square uh, yourself up with your government. And so now there's going to be pressure on lobbyists and, and, and the political system to reform surveillance so that these businesses, one of the largest growing businesses, and think about it, we're in a post-COVID world for crying out loud. If ever there was a time for businesses to be sprawling up on the internet and succeeding and, 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 and dominating all over the world, now would be the time to do that. Now is the time where people want to connect with their relatives in the UK where they can't visit them because of COVID and there's travel restrictions and all of those kinds of things. Facebook could never have been more important. And at the same time, because of the way that they have handled their users' privacy in the past and, 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 and been completely willing to surrender that data over to the government, and because we can no longer trust these governments to have privacy in mind, particularly the U.S. government and the way that uh, and some of the other entities that that are encompassed in that. Um, now we've arrived at a point where. If they don't change something, they're going to start to lose money. So I hope that gets somebody's attention.
Again, again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Autotux is a fully automated Linux distribution that is literally hands-off from start to finish. Now, this is primarily aimed at the, the people who want to switch from macOS or Windows. And so you're on Windows or you're on macOS or you have a friend that's on Windows, or you have a friend that's on macOS, and that person says, hey, I'd really like to move uh, off of this operating system and onto something else. And you start down the path of, well, I want you to go to Ubuntu.com, download this ISO, and then write it to the flash drive, then plug it in, and then uh, what you're probably going to start with is this dual booting thing where you tell it, uh, you know, only use part of my heart. You know, you walk through this entire process, right? And we've all done that for a friend or a family member at one point or multiple points um, in our lives. But the but the problem is there are small little things that happen during an installation that that put the user off, and then all of a sudden they never even get to the point where they were at a desktop where they could even try Linux. Um, and that's a problem. And so what Autotux is, is an, a fully automated installer. And it installs a completely unadulterated Debian 10 uh, distribution with XFCE. And uh, then they've themed it kind of like Mac OS. And so you have the traditional panel at the top and you get your, you get a little dock at the bottom and then, you know, a nice little pretty background and, and all of that. Now, what's important here is, and <laughs> this is really important to mention, this is not a live uh, session. So don't plug this into your system to try it out because you will hose your system. Um, what this does is is you plug the drive into your system and you tell them to boot off of the flash drive. On some computers, it's obviously going to be configured to start off the off the flash drive anyway, and so they, they'll just start their computer up. Um, but they don't have to do anything. Once you insert the installation medium, you turn on the computer. The installation process takes about 30 minutes and uh, doesn't need network, doesn't all the packages it needs are, are right there on the install media, but the computer gets done and, and you have a copy of Debian. Um, and I, I have to say, I wonder why more distros don't at least have this as an option. I can kind of understand not making it the default ISO because man, the live distro and the ability to try that, that's really something for people. But at the same time, um, you know, even at Alta Speed, when we go to reprovision employee laptops and you have people that come in, they bring your laptop in, we drop it off and they say, hey, this thing got messed up or that thing got messed up. We still install uh, from scratch. Um, we have uh, I we have images that we've taken with Clonezilla. So we kind of cheat the process, but the actual installation is happening uh, from stock. And the, the, the truth is I want basically all of the default options in Ubuntu anyway. Um, so just the option to just say, hey, just I'm going to click this button. I'm going to walk away. I just want to come back and be at a at a first setup. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, this and 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 so there's a limited number of variables when you set something like this out. And uh, what I could really see taking off is maybe not the entire operating system installed like this, but maybe the entire operating system installed. And then the first time that you log into the system, it walks you through new user setup and you can essentially turn a fresh quote unquote Windows laptop into a fresh quote unquote Linux laptop. One of the biggest problems I see getting anyone to use a, a, a niche distro is installation and ongoing support. And so, and this is certainly true with, uh, with Serpentine OS that we talked about at the beginning of the program. Uh, great idea, great concept, but one of the issues I have with uh, an operating system like that and why it's probably never going to be my daily driver is because at the end of the day, it's a very small amount of people that are currently supporting that. And hopefully that changes and hopefully it grows, but a lot of them don't. The nice thing about 
the nice thing about AutoTux is you're you when you're done, you're left with Debian. You're left with something that most people would set out to install anyway. It just saves them the trouble of clicking through all of the menu items and choosing what disk and what. I remember back in the day when you had to pick which file system to use. Man, that throws somebody for a loop if you never used it if you never used Linux before, right? But yeah, AutoTux, very very cool. Buy a computer, bring it home, plug in the flash drive, and wait for it to reboot, and you'll be back with a with a Linux distro. Pine is in the news again. Pine 64 is back with a limited edition smartphone for Linux enthusiasts. The Pine Phone Convergent Package comes with the Pine Phone Community Edition aimed at the post-market OS community. Post-market OS is based on Alpine Linux distro and it comes with a it comes with a built-in smartphone and desktop interface. And I want to stop right there and say I had not played with post-market OS. I had looked into it a little bit, but I'd kind of settled on Sailfish, and uh, I, I've been really liking Sailfish. And the, the, the thing that left me out in the cold, uh, at least originally with Postmarket OS and UbiPorts, to be, to be fair, is that, that both of those mobile phone operating systems felt like they were not quite done yet, like they, they were still working on they were going to get there. Whereas with Sailfish OS, when I flashed that onto the Sony Xperia and I rebooted it, I felt like I had just purchased a new toy from the store. And, uh, and, and everything from that day on has worked exactly the way that you would expect it to work. And the, the features that are there in Sailfish OS work flawlessly. Features that aren't there don't haphazardly work. They're just not there. Um, and, and none of them have been really important enough to draw me away from it. So I'm still carrying it around. It's still my companion device. But this conversion package really starts to challenge that, right? Because it comes with a docking station, and that docking station includes USB ports, it includes HDMI, and it includes a wired network jack. Now, on the surface, that sounds like, yeah, I don't know, right? I'm just connecting a bunch of USB peripherals to my phone. But the practical implications of having a, a dock where you can sit down and you can type an email on a comfortable keyboard with a comfortable monitor. All of the same things I told you about at the very beginning of the show, uh, the, the monitor risers and, and, and ways to hold your laptop and, and, and docking systems, all of these create a more usable experience on the laptop. And what Pine OS is, or what Pine 64 is doing here and Postmarket OS is doing is they are taking that and extending that into the mobile sphere. And why that's really important here is if you look at the direction of Apple, and I said this on Destination Linux on Sunday, the, the direction of iOS and Apple is continually moving towards mobile. Every time they release a newer version of macOS, it has tighter and tighter integrations and becomes more and more similar uh, to iOS. And, I, and, and now that Apple has made the announcement that they are going to rebase on the ARM uh, platform for their processors, it's pretty clear the direction that they're going. They want to be all in on iOS and they want to be all in on iOS on both the iPhone and the iPad Pro. And what they're going to be doing is they're going to be going to software vendors like Adobe and Microsoft and all these companies and saying, hey, we want you to make your software for iOS on our ARM platform. By the way, you're not going to have a choice because whether you're targeting the MacBook or whatever, it's all one processor. Here's what we have. And so now you're going to force these companies to make their software running. We're going to want to run on the Apple ecosystem system and they're going to want to run on the Apple ecosystem, they're going to have to play Apple's game. And what this does is it puts Apple in a very, very strong position 
to to double down on their most successful venture into technology yet, and that is the iPhone. That's what Apple makes their money off of. That's what Apple has done well. Go find an iPhone user. Most of them are pretty happy. And there isn't a lot of competition, and the competition that we have had has been pretty abysmal. What's exciting about Pine 64 is from the demo video that I've seen, and I have one on the way, so I will tell you if this live, lives up, because, you know, again, they constantly have a reputation of over-delivering. So it's never a bad idea to spend 200 bucks on, on a Pine device. You're probably getting twice that as, as far as market value. Um, but uh, So I'll let you know if it lives up, but all of the, all of the videos that I've seen and everything that I've read about this device is exactly where Canonical uh, kind of left off and said, we kind of tried to play in this space. It's too expensive. It's not going to work for us. Um, and, and, the, and they moved out of it. Uh, but this is where the competition to Apple is going to be is in in places like this. Now, I'm not I'm not saying that it's going to be Pine 64 you know, versus Apple. But what I'm saying is that the, the ground roots technology of having an open ecosystem to dock your phone that starts with companies like this, and that starts with ideas like this convergent package. So if it kind of, if it mostly works, if I can get a terminal, if I can get an email client, if I can get a web browser, if I can get, at this point, I have to have Riot Element, we'll talk about that in a moment. If I have to have, if I can get those things up on post-market OS, I will consider that to be a successful operating system and usable for most day-to-day -day tasks. Again, as a companion device. I'm very much okay and I've kind of accepted the fact that I am going to have to have a, uh, a, 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 I'm resigned to the fact that I have to have a major smartphone to function in today's world. Um, it doesn't mean I have to be married to that device. In fact, I found an app on, on F-Droid uh, called SMS Matrix. And so you can install that and then bridge your SMS messages to Riot. So now I'm not married to one physical device. Anywhere I'm signing to Riot, I'm going to get those messages. But I, I'd be very happy if I had a box or a device in a box that I just used as a as a proxy for the rest of the world. And so my, my actual cell phone that runs Android uh, just has a couple of apps that I have to have in order to do two-factor authentication to the bank and all of that. And I can find ways to get to that from a device I actually trust and the device that I carry and, and something that I can put all my data on and not have to worry about it syncing up to some cloud and those keys being given over to somebody I didn't give permission to. That's a really exciting prospect. And that's the promise with Pine64 and PostMarket OS. In fact, I think I went to PostMarket OS's website to see what kind of encryption that they supported and to make sure that I could, I could encrypt at least like an SD card or something like that. I think three different times on the site I saw encryption is very important to us. Full disk encryption. We value full disk encryption. We want to do, we, one of the things we wanted to do was full disk. Yeah, they really care about security. Um, and so it's exciting to see the, the, fur, the a very reliable hardware vendor like Pine64 that constantly uh, under-promises, over-delivers on everything they do, fantastic value, partner with an operating system that really aligns with at least what I think um, most people that are looking for an alternative companion device are looking for. This is it. Again, open phones, 855 450 no, it's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Um, the... Matrix got a, a pretty big update in the form of a new default client. So the way it was structured originally was there was Riot.im, and that was the official uh, uh, Matrix client that you could get on iOS and Android and so on and so forth, and download for the desktop. Well, they had a second version of Riot called Riot X, and Riot X was bleeding edge development 
this is what we think Ride is going to be uh, down the road. And what was interesting was I inadvertently installed Riot X without really understanding that difference, paired it, everything was working fine, uh, went through Linux or, uh, Southeast Linux Fest, didn't really think anything of it. And my producer uh, couldn't get Riot working on his phone. He goes, yeah, just ask me for this key, this thing doesn't work, that thing, I just can't figure out that why this thing doesn't work. I said, man, I didn't have any problems with it. And so we get to talking, find out he's using Riot.im, I'm using RiotX. He installs RiotX, turns out that's that was the issue. I had then found out that there were some issues with syncing keys on Riot.im. But I've kept both clients on my phone. Well, this week, Riot.im updated to a new client. It's called Element. And Element is the replacement for Riot. And so if you were using RiotX, um, my understanding is RiotX will still continue, or at least the, the bleeding edge part of it will. Um, but Element.im is the new default client for Matrix. And so I installed it on my phone, and sure enough, all the keys sunk up. Everything worked exactly like RiotX was working. I did notice a couple minor little changes, um, but all in all, a fantastic app. And uh, so if you haven't checked out Element, if you haven't played with Matrix, I, I'm still digging all in on Matrix. We have the Telegram group bridged to Matrix. I have uh, each one of my clients now, uh, they have you know various different proprietary solutions that they're using for internal team communication. But so far, anyway, Matrix has had bridges to all of them. And so I've just been bridging those into Riot, into Matrix, and uh, and and using that as my one-stop shop for, for communication. And it's worked very, very well. So check out the new Element client. If you haven't, it's uh, it's it's pretty awesome. And they've made a n number of different improvements, and I, I, re I really enjoy it. And syncing keys, encrypted chat, much, much easier. So if you had any problems with that, I invite you to give it a try again. Uh, COVID tracking. So this is interesting. Ireland's health services executive announced today that it's going to be donating the code for their COVID tracker app as open source to the nonprofit Linux Foundation. And this is going to enable people worldwide to quickly build and deploy their own contact tracing apps using a proven code base. And the donated app has been named COVID Green. So uh, back up a little bit, the Linux Foundation announced a new public health initiative called LFPH, and the idea here is to build and secure and sustain open source software to help and, and facilitate public health authorities to combat uh, not only COVID-19, but other epidemics. Um, the reality is that this kind of software is best developed in the open, particularly when there is such a high uh, concern for privacy and security. So the new group has seven premier partners or premier members, Cisco, DocAI, uh, Geometer, IBM, Net Nearform, uh, Tencent, and VMware. And uh, essentially, they've given themselves the job of help, helping contact tracing apps use the Google and Apple exposure notification framework. And so uh, just to, to give you a refresher what that is, back on April 10th, Google and Apple announced a two-phase exposure notification solution that essentially uses Bluetooth on multiple devices to aid in contact tracing. Now, we covered this on the show. Once enabled, users uh, will be able to regularly send out beacons via Bluetooth um, it, it, it generates a unique Bluetooth identifier, uh, a string of random numbers and, and letters, so it's not tied to a user's identity, and it changes every 10 to 20 minutes. And other phones are listening for those beacons, and they're broadcasting, of course, their beacon. When a phone receives another beacon, it records the location that the, that, that beacon was seen, and, uh, and, and, and stores it on the device, so it's not synced up to any one central database, anything like that. 
Uh, users have to opt into this, and so they have to right now. During phase one, they have to download an app and and uh, and 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 enable it, and that will allow that beacon to be regularly sent out and and to receive the beacon identifiers from other places. Um, in the second phase, eventually what they're going to do is they're going to introduce this capability into the operating system level itself to make everybody have the option whether or not you download the app, which I disagree with, but that's neither here nor there. Um, they say that that is vital to the success of contact tracing. And so after those up, after the operating system updates and, and, down, and downloads this mandatory contact tracing thing, um, it will be disabled by default. Uh, so the user has to first opt in and allow that information to be uh, to be sent, um, but the data is always stored in on the device. Other than the random uh, Bluetooth identifier, those are obviously synced up so that public health can say, "Hey, these two were in the same place. If each of them consent, then we can let you know let each other know all those kinds of things." Um, but what is interesting to me, well, a couple things are interesting to me on this. So the first thing is, this is fantastic. If I was concerned about privacy of a COVID tr contact tracing app, indeed, the way to get me to sign off on that is to let me see the source code or really let other people who understand it lead to see the source code and then tell me what it means. But this is a really great step. The other thing I like about this, the other thing I like about this is the truth is geeks like myself want to use technology to fight this virus. We want to use technology to overcome problems. In fact, we were the kids in school telling the teachers that it was kind of ridiculous that they're making us carry around backpacks full of, from, full, of, uh, full of books when I could just have PDFs. It doesn't make any sense, right? Same thing. I want to use technology to help to fight this virus. I just don't want to give my privacy up in the process of doing so because we value privacy and we value being anonymous. And so what this, you know, when you look at the groundwork, and I have to give credit where credit is due, when you look at the groundwork that Google and Apple laid, they put a firm line in the sand. There was a hard push from governments around the world to say, hey, we want access to that data. And Google and Apple stood firm. They said, absolutely not. The, the data resides on the device and people can opt in to share and they can go through you. You can administrate, you can keep track of numbers. But the actual identity of those people, their location data, all of that stuff stays on the device. And it's purged. It, you only get the last 14 days because that's all you need to do this thing. The fact that it's open source is going to prevent somebody from saying, hey, you know what? It was 14 days. But you know what would be great is if we had a, a, a little switch we could flip and it would give us 90 days or 120 days or whatever. That would be a good thing for, for future expansion in case we come across a virus that has a longer than 14 days. Yeah, that kind of stuff, right? Having it out in the open at least allows us to understand the world that we're living in. If something nefarious is going to happen, at least we'd all be able to see it. So this is really fantastic. And while I don't think uh, this is going to get a lot of mainstream adoption right off the bat, that is to say, why would, I'll use my home state of North Dakota, for example, why would they go to the Linux Foundation and use their app rather than have uh, somebody build an app in-house that's going to do, that's going to function exactly the way they want it to function. And by the way, they don't have to go through that process of everybody knows how the app functions and, and all of that. But I think the people that are, the, the honest people that just want to stay honest, the people that are actually interested in, in, in just fighting the disease and, and government agencies that don't have an interest in trying to piggyback onto the system to use it for other purposes, I think this is fantastic because they deliver them a ready-made product that they can just use. And and the other thing is it's going to attract the attention uh, and hopefully talent of a lot of people 
that can continue to improve this code base so that we do have a really effective tool against fighting the disease. It just isn't going to come at the cost of a privacy. The, the, the one thing I didn't understand if there's any developers in, uh, you know, in the audience that can, that can help me with this or, or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com and explain this to me. One of the things that Google and Apple pushed very hard was the fact that they were only going to give access to this API to uh, health agencies because those are the only agencies that, that they believed needed access to this kind of system. Um, if the application is truly open source and if and it, it does use these uh, the the Google and Apple API for for contact tracing, then I don't entirely understand how it is that um, this couldn't be misused. Um, and there's probably something I'm missing. And if there is, please give me a call at eight fifty five four fifty Noah or uh, send an email to live at asknoahshow.com and let me know what what I'm missing there. But that didn't quite make a lot of sense from how I understood that Google and Apple had presented this as an option. But then again, maybe they lied. Again, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Mozilla has temporarily suspended the Firefox Send file sharing service as the organization investigates reports of abuse uh, from malware operators while it adds a re report abuse button. So if you remember, uh, Mozilla launched Firefox Send uh, back in late 2019. And the idea was this, that you could have something inside of the browser that was very, very simple. You just go to send.firefox.com and upload a file, and it lives for a very short amount of time, but it has some basic controls, like an expiration date and how many times it could be downloaded, those kinds of things. And the ability to just send a uh, uh, some software, a large file, from one place to the other. This is something that has, it's a problem that has existed since the early 90s, and nobody has really come up with an elegant solution. Um, there are some places like Google, which have a, you know, you can upload it to Google Drive, and then you can email a link, and so they make the integration very nice, but it requires you to use that platform, right? Um, there has, there has, at least up until now, not been a way where you could just log onto a site, upload a file, send a link, and, and be done with it. And this is very useful. Anybody who's had to send either a large video file or has to send a collection of pictures or anything that that occupies a lot of space, there's a very, it's very difficult to do that, as particularly in a world that operates off of email. Most people want to just receive an email and then from there be directed, and they're willing to go out and do whatever. Uh, and so most people have been using things like Dropbox and Google Drive. And so Firefox Send aimed to fix this, but they didn't require an account. And it turns out that there's a lot of people with malicious intent that can use a service like this to do malicious things. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. Um, the use case was very similar time after time. Malware authors would upload malicious payloads to the Firefox Send. The file is then stored in an encrypted format, so nobody they couldn't necessarily recognize it. And then hackers share the links inside of emails to send to their targets. And, uh, you know, this is one of those things I, I really, I understand why Mozilla has to pull this stuff down and why they have to reevaluate this and why they have to try to put some some sort of mitigation in place. At the same time, I have to ask myself the question, in a true privacy world where people can do things anonymously, can you really prevent this from happening? You know, I, 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 when I dealt with a cryptoware, this is about a year ago, um, the place that we sent the payoff to, and I told the client, I said, you know, in principle, I would tell you not to pay these people off because you tell them what they're doing is profitable. At the same time, 
you know, I don't remember what they were asking, 2500 bucks, $3,000, something like that. I'm like, at the same time, if you have an insurance policy, I promise you it's going to cost more than $3,000 to, to recreate the amount of data that you've lost. And by the way, this is why you should have a, a good backup strategy in place, and we'd be pleased to offer that for you. Um, when you, when you, when we went to make the payment for that, the address indeed was a proton mail address. And I kind of got a chuckle out of it because a few weeks before that I had, we'd interviewed Andy for, for one of the times that we'd had him on the program. And I, I just had to laugh and I thought, well, that's kind of what you get when you have encrypted email is that there are going to be people that are going to use it for malicious things. I didn't think to myself, oh, I should fire off an email to Andy and let him know that his, his service is being used for malicious. I, I was, you know what, actually, I was really happy that the email provider hadn't shut down the email address and prevented me from paying this guy the ransom so that my client could get their files back. Actually, it was really nice that this guy, that, that the email still worked. So I, I apply that same logic here. Uh, is Firefox send, is it, is it being used to send malicious code? Obviously. Um, is that a problem though? Is that something that we really want to solve? I, I just, I question a little bit if that's the, if that's the right way to go about that, completely shutting it down. At some point, don't we have to just say, well, people can upload files anonymously. There's not much we can do about that. Hey, did you know we try to get to feedback at the end of the program? If you have a question, you couldn't make it to the program, couldn't li listen to us live at 6 p.m. Central, you can send it in via email, live at asknoahshow.com. Chris did that. He said, hi, Noah. I've been listening to your, sh to your show and was just listening to episode 188, the interview with Dr. Andy Yen from ProtonMail. I want to make a quick mention about a piece of software and technology that you're missing from the equation when talking about instant messaging. Neither, neither was mentioned during one of the recent shows of Dio when you were explaining your matrix.org setup. I'd like to recommend XMPP, specifically with the implementation of a ProSati as a server available from the main distro's repository, Gajam as a desktop client, and conversations.im as a mobile client. All of the above are open source top to bottom. The team behind the latter project implemented the open source version of Signal's double ratchet protocol, which is also available as a Python plugin for the desktop client Gajam. What it means is effectively you have the same Signal WhatsApp experience as far as secure end-to-end -end encryption messages, but you're ho hosting them yourself, which is not the case with the Signal app. I've been using this combo for the past year with great success. There's no upload limit of pictures, videos, and files. It's, on your, it's whatever your server is capable of handling. Moreover, I can get a key for every new device, laptop, desktop, mobile, in a way so every message is encrypted for all of the keys. By doing so, I can sync my messages between all of my machines. I can type one message from my phone and the other on my laptop, and none of those devices have to be constantly connected to the internet. Were you aware about all this? Was there a reason you didn't mention it earlier? Thanks for the great show and keep up the great work. Chris. Hey, I appreciate you mentioning this and bringing this to, the, to, to my attention. I have played with XMPP in the past. Here has been my, my issue with it. XMPP uh, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a dramatically improved uh, protocols compared to something like IRC, but I feel like it really kind of falls down in the face of something like Matrix, and I'll, I'll explain why. Um, one of the things that makes Matrix or Signal or Telegram uh, very, very useful is it's very, very aggressive at reconnecting back to its home server. And I don't know the actual uh, protocol as to how this works, but I can tell you this. On, on XMPP, at least in the past one, I've tried it. When new messages come, there is, there is either, I have one of two choices. Either there is, a, there is a, a distinct delay in those messages being delivered to my device, or 
my battery tanks because I there are there are settings that I can choose to to not do battery optimization or whatever I have to do on the mobile end, and that tanks my battery. But then I'll get all of my messages on time, and I have and so and then on top of that, actually setting up uh, the server. I, I did not find to be a uh, to be a particularly easy process. Now I wasn't doing I wasn't using ProCity. I was using um, fi something Fire uh, as an XMPP server, and so uh, OpenFire I think was the name of it. But in the, the and the thing was it was very featureful, and I was I was aware that they had a plugin for the Double Ratchet protocol, and in fact I believe that was a that was that came shortly after. Um, that came shortly after they they uh, they had rolled that out on on Signal and a bunch of other messaging applications that picked that up. But uh, the Riot uses the same kind of encryption. Riot Matrix infrastructure uses the same kind of encryption, but is built to specifically talk to other uh, endpoints. And the the big limitation to me in any sort of communication networking device is the network factor, the fact that I may like this piece of software and think that it's better, and maybe I think XMPP is better, maybe I think uh, you know, matrix is better, but the reality is that all of the other individuals that I want to talk to, well, some of them are on Facebook, some of them are on SMS, some of them are on Telegram, some of them are on IRC, some of them are on Slack, Discord, you get the idea. I can't convince everybody to come to one platform, and I think matrix really understands that, and so instead of focusing on trying to get everybody onto one platform and creating the best the, the best platform and then trying to get everybody on it what they've done is they've started with the idea of how do we present all of these different communication platforms into ours and get it connected and present it to the user in a consistent format because i'll tell you this sometimes the integration between matrix and whatever the other services is fantastic discord for example um, the only thing that distinguishes my username as, as a Riot user on a Discord server from an actual Discord user is it has a little tiny white box that says bot because it's, it's, it's puppeting, right? On the, on the other side of it, though, the Telegram integration, the Telegram side is horrific. I mean, it has this big, ugly box from the Matrix user and every message looks exactly the same. Uh, and then you have to read halfway through the message to find out who the actual sender was because that's happening on the matrix side. But on the matrix side, when you're in Riot, if you're that user, everything is presented completely consistently. I have no, I, I, when I tag users, it automatically passes all of that through to the other side, whether it's Slack or Discord or Discord, whatever it is, Riot does that for me and always presents a consistent user interface to me. And so, you know, I, I take a look at that I, I take a look at the fact that it is self-hosted, and so all of those messages are never leaving my devices. They're they're if they're if it's an end-to-end -end encrypted room, it's never even necessarily being it's not being stored on the server. It's just going from my device to that other person's device. If it's a shared room, it is syncing up to the server, but even that data is owned by me because I have the server. You we have seen this happen in Noah's booth. There's a couple people that have joined us in our matrix in our uh, matrix chat. And they started out with Linux Delta accounts because it was very easy for them to go to riot.linuxdelta.com and just sign up for an account. But they got to a point where they said, I kind of want to host this on my own. And so a couple of them had asked for some recommendations or asked for some ideas of how we had set our server up. And they went and set their own home servers up. And then they just migrated all of their stuff over. And the fact that that infrastructure exists and allows people to do that is what makes me think that Riot and Matrix is going to be the future of 
of decentralized communication technology. That's the other thing that XMPP I would I would add just to kind of wrap up is there is no uh, federation on XMPP uh, to the best of my understanding. You set up an instance, people join your server, and then they exist. If you want to talk to somebody else, you have to know that person's XMPP address. Um, you can't just you can't just discover them or add them into a, a room. And again, the last time I played with XMPP, in all honesty, was four or five years ago. So it, it's possible that a lot of this stuff is, is outdated and changed. And if so, so, please write me back. I'd be interested in hearing. Um, Larry writes in and says, my question is about routers. Due to the locality and where I live, AT&T is the best option for internet services. I was wondering, since I'd heard on a previous podcast that other routers may be more secure and flexible, what would you recommend? I currently have a Motorola device which came from AT&T. I would like to replace that unit. In the past, I thought you recommended Ubiquiti. I'm not sure if that's your current recommendation, but I'd like to get your present recommendation if possible. I appreciate your time and look forward to subscribing to your podcast in the near future. Thanks, Larry S. So a uh, couple of things there. First of all, um, the the router that I've recommended in the past has been Microtech. And the reason that I've re recommended Microtech is because uh, really it's a cost versus what you get. Um, the cost of the Microtech is about 50 bucks. And what you get is everything you'd get in their $3,000 router. It's the same operating system with the same features. It's not a handicap version, anything like that. The only difference is the actual hardware where it's residing on. And this is a very attractive way of operating to me because it means I can give employees routers and say, here, go learn the stuff that we're deploying in the field. Now, uh, truth be told, in a day where we are doing so many remote deployments, so many site-to-site -site VPNs, and so many road warrior VPNs, um, PFSense is just a better platform for that. And so we have switched our primary deployments to PFSense. And I've been very, very happy with with everything at PFSense. They've been around for a long time. A lot of people have used them. So that shouldn't come as a, too big of a surprise. But like Microtech, it's a very low barrier to entry. You can get started by just downloading the ISO and installing it on a box. So you can play with it and start to get to know PFSense. You can order a network card off of Amazon.com for about 50 bucks. I'll have one linked for you in the show notes. Um, and it's a dual network card, so it has two two ports on it, and that will allow you to have one jack for your uh, one jack for your WAN and one jack for your LAN, and then you just simply assign those inside of PFSense, and you can repurpose any old computer to be a a, a PFSense box. Uh, the other thing I like about PFSense is again the VPN uh, functionality. So if that's something that you're you're interested in playing with or if that's something that you're going to do or connect in remotely or connect out remotely too is a big thing that we've been doing we have employees our road warriors are working from home instead of having the vpn software on their laptops and forcing the laptop to connect all the time if they're working in uh if they're they're working from home what we'll do is we'll put a pf sense a remote road warrior uh, router and then we just have that thing call home and in a couple of instances we've actually paired that it's actually with AT&T so this might be an option for you we've paired that with an AT&T Nighthawk uh, hotspot and so they go to AT&T and they say we want a hotspot it costs them an extra 15 bucks a month the reason that we went with the Nighthawk is because it has a wired Ethernet jack and a bridge mode and so you log into the Nighthawk and you go in and tell it that you want it to be in a bridge mode and that will turn off the routing functionality on the AT&T router and pass that through to whatever you plug into it and so you can probably do this with the router the modem that you modem router that you have uh, log into it and see if you can put it into a bridge mode if you can you still want to try and keep the firmware up to date because it's still a device that is on the network 
um, but it's it's really it's going to be visible to to the to the cable company CMTS. Uh, the other side of it is your your point and all of your stuff, which is what we really care about, is going to be behind your PFSense firewall. Um, so that's what I'd recommend you do. There's a couple different options to do that. Like I say, you can build uh, out of a, you can repurpose it out of an old PC. The other thing that you can do is if you watch eBay, a lot of times uh, companies will pull out the rack mount units and they'll sell them for pennies on the dime. And so what would have cost you a thousand dollars, you can buy for just a couple hundred bucks on on eBay. The other thing is on Newegg and on Amazon, there are companies like Proteki, uh, P-R-O-T-E-C-T-I, T-L-I. And uh, they make micro appliances. So they make a little mini PC for like 300, between 300 bucks and 350 bucks um, that is specifically designed to be used as a router. And so uh, some of these, especially particularly the ones, if they ship from China, will come bundled uh, with PFSense. So they'll already have it installed. Now, word to the wise, I don't think that PFSense officially supports that. Um, in fact, I think it's an active violation of their... Uh, of their terms of service to, to pre-install and then sell a device. But nonetheless, people are doing that on, on Amazon. And then on, uh, on Newegg, actually, there is another company. I'll have all of these linked in the show notes for you. Um, but there is a Chinese company that I'm not even going to begin to pronounce, but they make a one U again, router firewall appliance, uh, deal that is pre, it comes pre-installed with PFSense. And so you can buy this, uh, this one U unit for $240 uh, and it, it comes pre-installed with Microtech or with, uh, excuse me, PFSense and you can uh, just, it's a one U box. You just plug it in, you start using it. And so I, I would, and then the third option is what you probably should do, but it's kind of an expensive option. That's to go to netgate.com and buy an official uh, NetGate router. Now that's going to be supported. So that's the best way to go. The problem is they're a little expensive. The uh, I think the small little portable units start at uh, at 200 bucks and then the more the 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 go to one that they rec I think this is called the 5600 uh, is like three hundred fifty dollars. And then the 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 only one you appliance you can get uh, the cheapest one is a thousand dollars. So if this is going into a business and it has to fit into a rack. Um, you know that's a really high price point. And so for that reason uh, we've looked at some of these. Um, cheaper less expensive chinese ones um and and we've had really good luck with them we put one in a in a in a very large installation that had a lot of users not only on the network but had people remoting in and they have ip video that is circulating around the the the, the building 60 some cameras and and no problems with it whatsoever so they, they've worked very very well um and again to get started you know virtualizing PFSense. Again, something that is not officially supported by NetGate, something that they, they actively discourage, but uh, this is also something that's very commonly done. Uh, set up libvirt D, install vert manager, and set up a VM and, and go ahead and install PFSense there. And if you buy an old Dell R710, something like that, it's going to have four network cards in it already. And so you can pass two of those to your PFSense box and now your router and your firewall is an actual virtualized appliance. And we have looked, we've tested, we've not actually put any of these in deployment yet, but we have tested office in a box, right? Where you basically uh, buy a, a 4U server and in that server is a, a virtual host and underneath the virtual host has all of the things that you need. It has your router and firewall appliance and intrusion detection, those kinds of things. Has a file server, ha it has uh, virtual workstations that you can remote into. And this all becomes possible because 
well, one, because of virtualization, but the other side of that is because the, the, the software for PFSense is just available. One thing I will throw in there, there is an alternative to PFSense called OpenSense. And a lot of people are, 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 the people who use OpenSense really, really like it. The thing that has kept me away from it is primarily because there just isn't the same amount of industry support that we have with PFSense. PFSense has been around for so long that every device has a plugin for it. Every, uh, you know, every ISPs have heard of it and, and can kind of help you walk through and say, oh, we, you know, we have this issue, look here, that kind of thing. Hey, the music means we're out of time. That's it for this week's episode. We, have, of course, have more content for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Make sure to check out the show notes. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, JTR producer. We'll be back next week at Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central, asknoahshow.com.